I moved a few years ago from being a liker of books to being a lover of books to being a collector of books, and now I think my wife would call me a hoarder of books. And I tell you that because what I, I, I love antique books in particular, and I really love antique Bibles. Um, that's, a, that's a cool thing for me. I love it. I, I have three bookcases in my office that are chock full of books. I have a bookcase in the closet in my office chock full of books. And that's great until you do something like we did a week and a half ago. We decided to get new carpet in our house. So for those of you that have ever gotten new carpet in your home while you still lived in your home, raise your hand. Okay? So for you folks, just I want you to say something with me in a minute. For all you other folks that have not put new carpet in your home while you're living in it, here's here's what we're going to say to you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Wait till you move out. Wait till you die. Let someone else put new carpet in there. That's the most insane thing I think I've ever done. And at 55 and my wife's 54, thank God for those sliders, by the way, you know. You slide some heavy stuff that you never thought you could move. But you move stuff out of a couple rooms. They put the carpet in those rooms. Then you have to move that stuff back into those rooms. We were putting stuff in bathtubs and bathrooms. I was cussing myself that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday because I was like, why did you collect books? I mean, my self-contempt and self-hatred was strong for those two or three days. And I'm like, carry any books? I'm like, I'll put them in this bathroom. I'll put them in this bathtub. And I kept thinking, why? I just started collecting books about 10 years ago. Hundreds of books. My wife's like, maybe, maybe you should get rid of a few. Yeah, maybe I should. I can tell you this. The next time somebody rolls up carpet and takes it out of our house, I'm going to be in it. I highly recommend you never do that, and sorry if you own a carpet store, but my gosh, we're still moving back in, and, and here's, here's the reason I tell you that story. The other day, just two or three days ago, I kid you not, this is the oldest book I own. It's a New Testament from 1796, yeah, 20 years after our nation the Declaration of Independence after our nation was founded. Three years before George Washington died, this book was printed. This, if y'all want to come up here and get your fingerprints on it, I'll let you, but it's kind of real special to me. And this is just the New Testament. And because I know sometimes in church people think that all of us Christians or followers of Jesus were Bible thumpers, I thought maybe we would stand in line, we would thump ourselves and turn it and hand it to the next person. What do you think? Is that a good way to get the New Testament in you? Probably not. You know, that book and the second half, as we sometimes call it, of the Bible, it's weird that we call it that because in reality, I think it's just God's one continuous, glorious, wondrous story. It's not like he says this is one chapter and this is the next or this is the first half and here's my second theory thought. It's one beautiful story. And it takes time getting our fingerprints on this book for that beautiful story to take this amazing picture. And as we, as we read it, as we obey it, as we succeed at doing that, as we fail at doing that, it changes our lives. But that New Testament, as we call it, there are 27 books. Some of them are extremely short, and some of them are a little longer. Nine different authors 
Two of those happened to be related to Jesus. Two of his brothers wrote one of those books, or each wrote a book. Paul wrote 13 of those, arguably maybe another one with the book of Hebrews. You got some apostles in there. You got John, you got Matthew, you got Peter who wrote some books or letters is what they're more like. The, things, the four things we call the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A couple of those guys were really good friends with some of the apostles, so that's why they tried to put into writing what they had been hearing and the stories of Jesus' life. You might, you might even call them biographies in some sense, those first four, that, where they tried to just show who Jesus was from his birth, some of them, all the way to his death and to his resurrection. And if you go open that portion of the Bible, that New Testament, and I would highly encourage you to start maybe in the book of Mark if you've never done it. You can go to the book of John. It'll be a little more challenging. It's a wonderful book too. You won't go wrong choosing any of those first four to get a picture to get an understanding of maybe who Jesus says he is, not who we say he is or who we think he is. I mean, he was a teacher, the people said, who taught as one who had authority. Not like the teachers and the scribes, not the religious people of the day getting up and talking about God. He talked as if he was God. They're like, where does this authority come from? Isn't he the carpenter from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And yet his teaching blew people away. And quite frankly, it offended the, the authorities of the day. Not only that, but he was a healer. And if you open up these pages, you will see that he healed people because he had mercy and compassion beyond anything we have in our bodies. I know I'm not the most compassionate and merciful person, and I know some of you probably are. But even those of you that have that amazing gift, you're not like Jesus. He felt in his soul the pain of someone who was sick or had demon possession. And he healed them routinely. And you don't know that unless you get your fingerprints on the Bible. And you begin to see this compassion of this person who truly was otherworldly. Some people called him the Messiah, and he kept telling them, you'd be quiet about that, because he didn't want that to get in the way. He didn't want the miracles to get in the way. He didn't want the healing to get in the way. He didn't even want the teaching to get in the way of the training that he was doing with those 12 apostles, because he knew he was going to die soon, and they were the ones that were going to carry the message that's actually got us here today. Think about that. Those 12 ordinary, uneducated men, or at least 11 of them, they're the ones that have passed these stories down, put them, some of them into writing so that we can get our fingerprints on it and discover this is a living, breathing God. And here's the word that he has given us to get to know him. Not some sort of task to accomplish, which I've done in my life. Oh, I got to read the Bible today. What am I going to read in the Bible today? I'll just flip right there. I'll read that. Hmm. Maybe God has something to say to me today. I've done that a few times. Most of the time. It wasn't overwhelming. But when we get a plan to actually discover who he is and get our fingerprints, especially on that newer portion of the Bible, as we call the New Testament, we begin to see he was a miracle worker. I mean, I don't know about you, but how many of you have ever seen a human being walk on water and not sink? Last night, I kid you not, I was watching a football game, and someone said, oh, he walked on water like Moses. That's how he described the running back going in the end zone. And I was like, 
well, Moses walked on dry land when, when the sea parted, but he didn't necessarily walk on water. I was like, you're mixing a couple Bible stories, but hey, that's okay. Maybe he just got his fingerprints on the Bible. He, he did some amazing miracles. He, he said this during a storm when they're in a boat. And if any of you have ever been in a boat during a storm, I haven't. I don't want to be. But he said, peace be still. And the storm stopped. And the waves died down and the wind stopped blowing. I, I've never witnessed that. I would love to go fishing with one of you and have a storm come up and you do that. And I'd be like, okay. I'm sitting with someone that's otherworldly. It's not going to happen. Teacher, healer, miracle worker. He was even a forgiver of sins. And boy, that really checked the religious authorities because he was basically saying, I am God. I am one with God. And just so you know that I have the ability on this earth to forgive sins, he also then told the man to get up and take his mat and walk. So he healed someone, but first he forgave his sins, and they were like, what is going on? You can't do that. That's blasphemy. But if you look at all of those reasons, here, here's my thoughts on this. Those are kind of like around the hub of a wheel, if you will, of Jesus. They're, they're good things. They're in the hub. He was a great teacher, healer, miracle worker, forgiver. But at the center, I find something different or something more, maybe is a better way to say it. He wants to be Lord and Savior. And he also is described as the Lamb of God, and that's how he becomes the Savior and our Lord. And you may be wondering, what that, does that mean, the Lamb of God? His own cousin, John, John the Baptist, when he was going out to John the Baptist to be baptized, because all these people were going out to John, they were like, what is this guy? He's saying, he's got a new message. He's basically saying, look, the kingdom of God is coming near. And Jesus goes out to him, and John's like, I'm not going to baptize you. But before he even said that, he looked at Jesus, who was walking near him or towards him, and he said, look, behold the Lamb of God. That's an odd way to say something about somebody. I think if I tried to put it into terms today, it would be like, hey, here comes my friend Lou, who's going to sacrifice his life for all of you. <laughs> what do you think of that, Lou? What? Jesus didn't react. He didn't stumble. He didn't counter that comment he just accepted it and came up and said let's do this you baptize me john for all righteousness and then one of the most amazing things happened heaven opened up a spirit the spirit like came down on him like a dove and alighted on him it says and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom i love with him i am well pleased there's something more at the center of who jesus is other than teacher and healer and miracle worker and that's why he was buying his time, so he could train those disciples to trust him, to put their ultimate trust in him. They were all thinking maybe a king, maybe a messiah, but they were, had earthly things in mind. Who wouldn't want to be next to a king on this earth who was all powerful? I'd like to be in their cabinet like, yeah, hey, take care of that. Can I sit at your right hand or your left hand? That's what they really wanted, but they were seeing something different, and then he kept telling him. You don't, have in th you don't have in mind the things of heaven. You have in mind the things of men, of humans. You really don't have a total understanding, and that's okay. You don't have an understanding of who I am, who I really came to be. I came to be the Lamb of God. 
but I want your trust. And I think that's what he says to each one of us today, regardless of where you are on this journey. And let me tell you this, regardless of whether you've opened this book yet, but as Roy said earlier, you can't have a spiritual journey without getting your fingerprints on this. You can start it, but you will never grow in depth in it. So I encourage you to find a way to do that. You can go get our little How to Read the Bible booklet out there. It's on the app underneath Engaging the Bible, or it's under Resources. You can sit with other people in one of these chosen groups and watch a phenomenal series, video series, and then discuss it and engage it. But Jesus is basically saying, do you trust me? Will you trust me? You may not have it all figured out yet. That's okay. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you fail and then still trust me? And that's what he says to us today. And when we get our fingerprints on this Bible, specifically on the second portion of it, we call the New Testament, we begin to see somebody who walked this earth both as a human being and somehow God, and I'm thankful I can't explain that. I I can't explain it. Can we explain that? He's somehow fully God and fully human. But he did some amazing things But the most amazing thing is he went to the cross as the Lamb of God. And I'd like to read to you from Luke 22, verses 7 through 20. And it's not going to be up on the side of the screen because it's pretty doggone long and I didn't want us all to get lost. So bear with me if you want to follow along. Luke 22, 7 through 20. This This is the day before he is crucified. It says, now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Let me just push pause there for a second. The reason they're celebrating this is years and years and years before, hundreds of years, almost actually thousand plus years, when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, right before they were going to leave Egypt and be in the Exodus and Moses was going to lead them out, All of these things Moses was telling the Pharaoh, you better let my people go or this is going to happen. You better let my people go or this is going to happen. The last thing was that the firstborn of every household was going to die. And the angel of death was going to come at night and kill the firstborn male of every household. And the way that the Israelites were to not have that happen in their home is they were to put blood on the top of their door frame so that the angel of death, hear this, would pass over that house. That's where we get the word Passover. They were celebrating this thousand plus years later because that was an amazing thing in the history of Israel, that the angel of death literally passed over all of those Israelite homes that put blood above the doorpost. And so keep that blood thing in mind for a second. But it says, now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. So they still were practicing Uh, slaughtering a Passover lamb every year about this time. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal. You would celebrate it with a meal so we can eat it together. They asked, well, where do you want us to prepare it? He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Okay, how would he know that? Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, The teacher asked, where is this guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? 
He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. And they went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said. And they prepared the Passover meal there. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. He knew what was coming. They didn't. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until it is, its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now, there's a lot going on in that passage. And we're going to talk about communion here in a second. But they were about to celebrate that Passover meal because every year they would sacrifice a lamb, the Passover lamb. Don't forget what John had called Jesus when he saw him walking towards him. Behold, the lamb of God. And so you kind of have to go back to, again, what we call the Old Testament that I like to think of as just one big story. And what you'll discover is when Israel came out of Egypt... God gave them the Ten Commandments for sure. He gave them all these other laws to help them with their health and keep the cleanliness in the camp. But he also gave them all these these laws to sacrifice animals when they sinned, when they fell short of the law. Now, if you can just imagine the tabernacle, which was like the big tent while they were moving towards the promised land, and then the temple once they were in Jerusalem, and daily animals were sacrificed Because those animals had not committed sin, and somehow that atoned, at least for a time being, for the person's sin. I I don't know if you've ever thought long and hard about it, but it had to be a stinky, smelly place when you were sacrificing multiple animals to try to atone for the sin or the mistakes or the failures of every Israelite. And then once a year, the high priest, as they were called, one high priest was chosen to go into what's called the most holy place, the holiest of holies. And he could only go in there one time a year because that's where God's presence was said to reside in the temple. Behind this heavy curtain that somehow was three feet thick, not three feet wide, three feet thick, this amazing tapestry. And that priest would go in there once a year to try and atone for his sin and the sin of the people with the blood of an animal. And I tell you all that because Jesus was basically saying a few hours before he was crucified, I'm the Lamb of God. I'm the final Passover Lamb. If you trust me, if you will follow me, if you will obey me, if you will receive my love, my grace, my forgiveness... The angel of death will forever pass over you. Even if you sin again, which he knows we can and will do, he's the final lamb to be sacrificed. He's also the final high priest because it says that he now goes into the presence of God in heaven and he intercedes for us. That's a big word for saying he prays for each of us. 
He is in heaven sitting at the right hand of God saying, I covered that, God, remember? I covered that, Father, remember? My blood has paid the price for Sean's sins and everyone else's sins who trust in the Son of God. He's the final lamb. The writer of Hebrews, and that is argued who wrote it. Uh, Roy and I were talking this morning, and he even said, somebody had said to him who taught him in his Hebrew class in college, which I have not taken, by the way, and don't care to, um, that it could have been Barnabas. But regardless of who it was, whether it was Paul or Barnabas or Apollo or, or Luke, it doesn't matter. But whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, they had to have an understanding of the Old Testament that I, way beyond mine. I mean, he, he just knew what was in the Old Testament because he probably had it memorized. And if you really want to explore this in a greater way, you could go read Leviticus, which will be a challenging read to see about some of these sacrifices that they used to do. And then go read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. And you begin to see how the two are so connected. But I want to read a little bit from Hebrews 10 just to kind of whet your appetite. Sorry, I need these. Under the old covenant, this is coming out of Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, he's talking about Jesus here, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. The temple is where the sacrifices used to take place. The temple is where God was said to reside in the holiest of holies. And when Jesus comes along and says, I'm the final Passover lamb, we're going to celebrate that tonight because you have no idea what's coming tomorrow. You have no idea that I'm going to die on a cross. You have no idea that in three days I will be rising again. The temple is where the sacrifices used to take place. And let me help you understand something here because it, it, I, I've learned this a lot. You are now the temple. The sacrifice has already been made, and you are now the temple where the Spirit of God resides if you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Think about that. It's not a building. It's not a building in Jerusalem. It's not this building. It's not any church building. It's not any, it's not any physical thing like that. It is us. Jesus says, the Spirit of God, my Spirit, will reside in you as you trust me. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? I want you to ask yourself this. What help do I need to get my fingerprints on the Bible? It is a challenging book. I, I've read it a lot in my life. And there are many places. I, I, I watched Dan's message from two weeks ago. I watched Roy's last week. Uh, I know this. There are things that you still encounter and you're like, I have no idea what that means. But there are other places like when I read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 this week again, and I hadn't read them for some time. And it just hit me again. I'm like, oh, oh, 
you're that final Passover lamb. Yeah, I knew that before, but it reiterated it in me again. It challenged me to ask myself, do I treat my body like the temple of God that it is? Not always was my answer. In our men's group yesterday morning, we had engaged a passage where we were all saying, how are we going to try to live this thing out? And one of the guys was like, I'm going to go and I'm going to read and and look at all the different names for God and choose one that really hits me in my heart. And, And that's what the Bible can do. It is the living, breathing word of God. It's way beyond a history book. It's a book that if you engage it on a regular basis, whatever that is for you, If you get your fingerprints on it, God promises to get his fingerprints on your life. As you fail at following it and as you succeed. And if you do that with others, the weeks that they might fail, you might succeed. And that's the power of connection in group. That's the power of being in relationships where you can hear other people engaging this thing. And you realize that he's the master surgeon using this as some sort of scalpel. And that may scare some of you. I don't want to go undergo surgery without anesthesia. I don't even want to undergo surgery at all. But... He uses it to carve up our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And what's amazing about this new covenant, that's what I like to call it, that's what Jesus called it. There was the old covenant that God said, let's enter into this covenant together. If you obey me, if you follow these laws, I will protect you and bless you. And most of the Old Testament is about Israel failing to follow all his laws because you can't. We can't. And many of us Christians today, we think we can. We get into this thing that says, I will not sin. And we do it under some sort of white-knuckle obedience. And God says, good luck with that. You might want to get your fingerprints on the first part of the Bible and see how well that didn't work. But if you trust my son has paid that price for you, he's paid the price for your sin in the past, sin present, and sin future. And if you trust him and obey him and follow him, all with your failure in that, all with your success in that, you can have life alive. So now he invites us to this communion table. There's a couple stations here, there's a couple over here, there's one right back there, and there's one at the very top of the, of the balcony. And the band's going to come out here in a little bit, and they're going to play a couple songs. And I would love for you to to sit for just a smidge during that first song and, and ask God, God, I want to trust you. Will you help me trust you? Will you help me believe that you sent your son to die in my place? So if you have not really began that journey, you're here and it's brand new to you, it's okay to sit in your chair for those two songs and not move towards this communion table. But if you have the inclination in your heart that he's calling you to him, if you have the desire to trust him and what he says for your life, not your own, that doesn't mean you won't fail at times, but if you have that desire to trust him, then ask him to actually have this bread and this juice represent his body and his blood for you, either for the first time or again. It should be a time of repentance. It can be a time of joy. The Son of God died in our place. That's pretty painful to think that a person, the Son of God had to die for me, for my brokenness, 
So I bring my brokenness to him, and he says, I got it. I'll take it, and I'll prove that it no longer has value. I no longer see it in your life. I have wiped it as far as the east is from the west. My blood has covered it, Sean. He's covered it for you. And the joy comes from life. (laughs) That stuff's not held against me. I don't have to be perfect like the Israelites tried, so many of them. And so many of the Israelites in Jesus' day had just given up. Because not only were they, could they not follow God's law, then all the religious authorities were putting even more laws on them. And they're like, I just can't survive under that weight. And Jesus says, you don't have to. And that's why when you see someone like Mary Magdalene, who had a rough life, but she gives her life to Jesus, she trusts him. It's an amazing transformation. And she, you, you see the joy in her. And I can imagine sitting as I'm thinking about taking communion, that, that these, these first apostles that walked with Jesus while he lived on this earth, and all of the people since then in that chain of connection, all the way to here today, those people, either dead or alive, can take communion, whether they're in heaven or on earth. Do you trust that Jesus wants to be the Lamb of God in your life and die in your place so that you truly can have life beyond your sin and beyond your brokenness. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I'm gonna thank you for a (laughs) carpet install because that forced me to just move all my books and in doing so I picked up this really heavy old New Testament. And I realized that it's still 1,720 years after the very first fragments that we have of a New Testament. And that your word has been perfect all along. And that the story that you began with Adam and Eve and their failure, all the way through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's sons, and they sold Joseph into slavery, and then to Moses, and then the, the Israelites, and then the failures and the exile, then coming back to Jerusalem, and then Jesus. Oh, thank you, God, for Jesus, who personified grace and forgiveness. And he did not fight back against authorities, but he willingly, knowingly, and joyfully went to the cross as the final Passover lamb. God, pray that we can internalize that today this week, and during this time of communion with you. Thank you for Jesus, and in his name I pray, amen. You know, one of the, one of the worst things that we can do when we walk out of a, a space like this, where maybe you were moved, is that we forget what happened uh, within an hour or 24 hours. Uh, I know the guys in our, in our men's group, uh, if we put our I will, our obedience statement, in script that we're going to try and do for that week, if we put that in our phone or put it as a reminder somewhere, we tend to act on it. We tend to do it. When we don't, we don't do so well. We're a forgetful people. And, and we prioritize so many things in our lives. And I just encourage you and I challenge you that if the living, breathing word of God can bring you life, then how can you not find a way to prioritize it in your life? Dan talked a couple weeks ago about 
start with five minutes. Move to 10. Maybe it's every other day. Maybe it's once a week. But find a path towards getting your fingerprints on that book. You know, the, the day that Jesus was crucified, the Bible records that one of the, the, the amazing things that happened upon his crucifixion was that that curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place where God was said to reside, that curtain in the temple in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, excuse me, it split from top to bottom. It was just another symbol that said, you can now boldly come into my throne because of what my son, the Lamb of God, has done for you. There is no separation between man and God because of what Jesus did. You don't have any inter intermediary that you have to go through. Jesus said he is the way and the truth and the life. There's some tools that I encourage you to check out as you go out there. There's walk through the New Testament. There's some booklets. This used to be a course that was taught, still is actually, and you can get it and move through it. And in the very back, there's a 30-day like how to move through the New Testament. I encourage you to take a look at that if that's a tool you could use. If you've never got your fingerprints on the Bible, get our app or get the little booklet out there that says how to read the Bible. I want to read something to you. I think I can do it in a minute. This is hanging um, on a, in a plaque, if you will, or in my wall, on my wall in my office, sorry. It's called One Solitary Life, attributed to James Allen Francis. It says this, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. For three years, he was an itinerant preacher, which just means a traveling preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. <laughs> he never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today, he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of humankind on this earth as much as that one solitary life. That's Jesus. Will you embrace him and will you trust him with your life? Get those fingerprints on the Bible. Let us know how we can help. We want to help you. And those groups are another good way. Well, that concludes our fingerprint series. Next week, we're starting something called Unconnected. You got that little thing? Take a look at it. It's a way that we are a lonely people in this world. And let's go explore how we can not be unconnected. Have a great week.